The reading is Isaiah 35 and can be found on page 720 of the Church Bibles. Joy of the Redeemed The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given into it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with a divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No line will be there, nor any ravenous beast but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Thomas. Dave, come on up, my friend. Let's give Dave a welcome. Can we do that? I'd love to pray for you. Father, thank you for this man who has modeled so much to so many of us, who's given a lead in saving this planet and changed so many of our lives and our ways. Thank you for the way in which he and Anne have led their family into this. And thank you for the work that they do with Arosha and so many organizations and um, places around the world where they promote um, the care of this world, the restoration of your creation. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon him today as he encourages us and challenges us and reminds us of who we should be and how we should be. Bless him, Lord. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to be here at St. John's this morning. It's lovely to be back. Um, For those of you who don't know Anne and myself, we were here back nearly 20 years ago um, as part of St. John's, um, just when we were setting up Arusha UK. Um, back in the early days there, and and it's fantastic to be back and to be amongst friends. Um, I'm going to dive straight into my presentation because I've brought far too much to say this morning, 
And um, so I'm going to be rattling through, and you're going to get fed up with me saying next, but not quite as fed up as the poor guy on the, on the computer there who's going to be pushing an awful lot of times. So I want us to think today about our vision for 2020, about 2020 vision, not just for us individually, not just for us as a church, but I want us to think about a 2020 vision for planet Earth. Can we have the next slide? Does anybody know where this picture was taken? Saturn, absolutely right. It was actually taken from the Cassini spacecraft back in 2013 as it flew very, very close to Saturn. And you can see the corner of Saturn and some of the rings there. And if you look in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see a small blue dot. And that's our Earth. That's this planet viewed from an awfully long way away. Tiny, fragile, beautiful, and as far as we know, despite 50 years of exploring, the only place where life exists. Next slide. There it is. That's our home. It's the only one we've got. It's the one we've been entrusted with. It's the place that God has made, along with everything else, and the place he has asked us to care for. Next slide. Somebody tell me where this is. It's the spaceship. It's the inside of the International Space Station, where a small number of people from America and Russia and a few other countries are, and where they have to live. And if we can just click once more, some words should appear. There we go. And that is their life support system. Everything they need in the way of air to breathe, water to drink, food to eat, waste disposal, and everything happens within that tiny space. If somebody suddenly decides, I'm going to open a door, or I'm going to unplug this and see what happens, it has huge consequences for the others on the International Space Station, potentially fatal consequences. And our Earth is a space station with life support systems that we are playing around with all the time, with extraordinarily damaging consequences that we are only just beginning to discover. Next slide. So what is our 2020 vision for planet Earth? What do we think is going to happen as we look ahead? What do we think should happen? What do we think the Bible has to say about this subject? Next slide. This slide is going to rapidly, if it works, yeah it is, go through a whole bunch of graphs that we haven't got time to go into in detail. What I want you to notice is that all these graphs are roughly the same shape. They all have an exponential growth curve. And they look at world population, carbon dioxide emissions, fertilizer consumption, fresh water use, tropical forest loss, marine fish capture, and growth in transportation. And they just show the human impact that we have had, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, and how it is just rocketing away in ways that are completely unsustainable. 
The one graph there that slightly bucks the trend is the marine fish capture one, partly because we don't have data before 1950, and partly because it's starting to drop at the end. But that's not because we're deciding to be more sustainable about our fishing. It's simply because there's less to fish. The oceans are running out. And that's what's going to happen with all these other graphs if we keep on going the way that we're going. And we could look at so many things this morning, and I just want to put up a few images to remind us of some of what we're doing. Here we look at the chopping down of forests that are homes to wonderful, wonderful creatures for growing palm oil that all of us use every day in everything from toothpaste to soap to the food that we eat. We can think about plastic pollution and the huge damage that that is doing around the world, how that is affecting whales and dolphins and albatrosses and turtles and people right around the world in devastating ways. Next one. We can look overall at the loss in biodiversity since 1970. So in my lifetime and the lifetimes of many of you, not young people like Olivia, but many of you, the lifetimes of many of us, the world's wildlife has disappeared by about 60%. That doesn't mean species, that's population sizes have declined by 60% more than now uh, within the last 50 years. It's an extraordinary extinction, mass extinction, that we are seeing now, and the only one caused by a fellow species on this planet. Next slide. And this is the most recent one. This is Australia. A beach in Australia. A highly developed, wealthy country, and here are middle-class people sat on a beach while their homes burn. And a horse, for some reason, randomly amongst them. As they consider whether they're going to have to get into the sea in order to escape the flames that are coming. I visited Australia two years ago and for a, a big conference that Arosha helped organise. And the conference was opened by one of the local Aboriginal chiefs whose land we were on, and who reminded us, and he was not only a chief, he was a pastor and a preacher as well, and he reminded us that the Aboriginal communities in Australia have looked after and stewarded that land and its wildlife for somewhere between 40 and 60,000 years. And they've had fires, and they've dealt with them, and they've looked after and stewarded that land. And now, in less than 200 years, since... Europeans, and since what we call civilization has come to that land, we have destroyed so much of its wildlife, and we now see so much of it on fire. Next slide. And today we are seeing the response to what we are doing to planet Earth in an uprising amongst many people, especially but not only young people. It's astonishing if you talk to people between the ages of 15 to 25, which I do a lot, you find that this is the subject that people are talking about all the time. Greta Thunberg has made an extraordinary impact because she has voiced and amplified what actually so many million people are thinking and saying from so many different parts of the world. And I've had 
emails from obscure countries in the middle of Africa, well, obscure to me, countries in the middle of Africa, saying, she's saying what we're feeling. We are the victims of what your rich countries are doing here, and we are suffering because of it. And with Extinction Rebellion, with the school strikes, we are seeing an uprising in eco-anxiety, in climate despair, and of course in Extinction Rebellion. And listen to those words, rebellion, despair, anxiety. I mean, I was a teenager at the time when nuclear war was seemed to be the big threat. But the cataclysm that we are unveiling now has an inevitability about it that makes that seem very, very small. Next slide. So what is our 2020 vision for planet Earth in a context of disaster, of despair, and for many of defeat, of a sense that it's too late, that we haven't done what we needed to when we could, and now we are simply going to see things get much, much worse very quickly and very randomly. Well, that context of disaster and despair and defeat was exactly the context that Isaiah 35 and so many of the passages of the Old Testament were actually written in. Next slide. This is a picture of a desert, but not as we're used to seeing a desert. It's a desert that has started to bloom. And that is the vision of Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. In fact, if you click, the words will come up, hopefully. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. I won't read the whole chapter. It's an astonishing vision because of its context. The people of Israel had been defeated. All their hopes, their visions, their belief that they were God's chosen special people seemed to have come to an end. Their kings were defeated by bigger kings. They were carried off into exile. Their temple was destroyed. What was left? Where could they find hope? And yet time and again in the Old Testament, we have these visions of hope in the middle of despair. And that's what I want to think about as we look on. In fact, if we just flick through three more slides, I won't read the whole chapter because we've heard it beautifully read. What I want us to think about now is that we need a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is a complete change of our mental world view. Like the change that happens when we stand on this earth and look out at the sky and think, isn't that amazing, to the change when we get a picture from the Cassini spacecraft that shows us just how tiny this world is and puts us in our place. How do we see our place in the world as human beings, as Christians? Next slide. When I was doing my PhD work, one of the papers that I read and was really helpful was a paper by Georgina Mace, who is an eminent professor, talking about how and why humans value nature. And she came up with four reasons. We can value nature for itself. We can value nature despite people, nature for people, or people and nature. And I want to just rattle through those quite quickly and think about them a little bit biblically. Nature for itself, intrinsic value. 
The idea that the world is beautiful and important, not because it's useful for us, but just because it is. Next slide. It's an ecocentric worldview. The idea that we're just one amongst the many creatures. If you talk to many, many people today, this is the worldview that they have. That we're just one creature amongst the many. And nature and all other creatures are valuable and important too. And what right have we to take away their habits, habitats, to destroy them, or even to eat them? And hence the big growth in veganism that we're seeing at the moment. Next slide. The second worldview you might call nature despite people. Does anyone know where this photo is? No. Okay, it's the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea. An area that has been pretty much untouched by human beings for the last 50 years. And it has become the most important nature reserve on the Korean Peninsula simply because humans have been kept out. And it's a very powerful argument for the best way of looking after nature is get rid of people. At least put people in their space and let nature look after itself on its own. Next slide. And so some top experts like E.O. Wilson, the great scientist, are saying what we need to do is rope off half the earth, literally or metaphorically, and leave that for the rest of the world to look after itself, and then we can carry on messing up the bit that we want. But let the rest of the world at least have half the planet, please. Uh, and that's his argument. Keeping humans out is the only way to protect nature. It's a fairly depressing view. It doesn't ex exactly fit with the idea as God entrusting the earth to us as its stewards, but it's a view that's gaining increasing traction amongst scientists. Next picture. Third view, nature for people. It's an anthropocentric view. Humans are at the top of the pile. Uh, if you are one of the 51%, you may notice you're not at the top of the pile there, but that kind of hierarchy often goes with this kind of hierarchy. That it's all there for us. It's there for us to rule over. It's there for us to use as we wish, to exploit and enjoy, and if we feel like it, destroy. And that's pretty much the way that our economies, whether communist or capitalist or anything else, have treated the planet over the last 2,000 years. Next slide. It's a view that sees the Earth, in the words of the United Nations, simply as ecosystem services. The Earth is there to provide what we need, clean air, clean water, food, fuel, for us. Next slide. It's a view that we find repeated in the policies of government. So the UK government has a natural capital initiative. Nature is capital to be used for human benefit. The European Union has a, a scheme called the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity. How can nature make money for us? Let's put a barcode on a forest and see what it will do for us. Nature is simply there to serve us. It's that worldview, I would suggest, that has led to the problem that we're in today. And yet many have assumed it's what the Bible teaches. Next picture. In fact, John Calvin once said this. The end for which all things were created was that none of the convenience and necessities of life might be wanting to man. 
So is that what the Bible teaches? Well, what about the fourth worldview? Next slide. People and nature. Or I'm going to retitle it, if we can click again. Instead of people and nature, people within nature. And I want to suggest that this is a truly biblical view. It's what we see encapsulated in Isaiah 35, and in fact, throughout the scriptures. Let me rattle through. It's not an egocentric view that says it's all for us. It's not an ecocentric view that says it's all just randomly involved and we're just one little bit. It's a theocentric view that says the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. That says God so loved the world, and the Greek is cosmos in John 3, that he sent his son. And that sees us as having a very special place. We're at the bottom of that heart, not because we're the least important, but because God made us the steward species, the ones he entrusted with the care of the rest of creation. For those who've trained in ecology, we're the keystone species. That's how God has created us. It's a theo-ecocentric view, if you like. Next slide. And as we go through the Bible, we find this view time and time again. It's there in Genesis, where humans are made from the humus from the earth, Adam from Adamah, the soil. We are made to care for that which we are part of. We are told to have dominion, which does not mean domination. It means loving, gentle care. Next slide. We are called to be like Noah, and particularly at a time like this, to preserve not just people like us, but every living creature upon the earth. What a story about biodiversity conservation is the story of Noah's Ark. Next slide. We are called to follow Jesus, who is not only my Jesus, my saviour, which of course he is, but is also the creator, sustainer, and saviour of the whole world. And we are called to follow him as his disciples in caring for his world. Next slide. As the church, we are called to be Christ's body here on earth, sent out to be his hands and feet, because creation is waiting for the sons and daughters, the children of God, the church, to be revealed. Next slide. And there's the desert again. In the weeks after the tragedy that happened in South Africa, where three of my closest friends and Anne's where three of our senior colleagues in Arosha were killed in a tragic car accident. And as we reflected on what on earth God was doing, and as our personal grief and our grief for what we're doing to the planet seemed to meld together, we found one theme coming through again and again and again. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. But if it dies, it can produce much fruit. And one of our South African team sent me an email. She said as she was mourning, she drove with a friend out into the desert in South Africa. And she prayed. She said, Lord, we are in a desert here. We don't know what you're doing. What's going on? And then the rain started. And almost in front of their eyes, the flowers exploded, as they do in the South African desert. Crocuses in the desert, as Isaiah 35 talks about. Hope in the middle of despair. That is the biblical vision 
This world is not going to be burned up and destroyed. It's going to be renewed when Christ comes back. And we're called to anticipate that now in how we live and behave. Next slide. So I want to just, for a couple of minutes, talk about Arosha as I begin to wind this up and about what God is doing through this extraordinary bunch of people working in more than 20 countries around the world. If you're not familiar with the name, it simply means The Rock in Portuguese. Next slide. It's been a time of joy and struggle for us. Um, Anne was ordained last summer. I finally, after eight years, managed to complete my PhD. So we had great joys as a family, but it's been a time of personal struggle with Anne suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome and limited to being in a wheelchair and unable to fulfill what we feel God has called her to be doing at the moment. So we've had those personal struggles ourselves. Next slide. And then the huge tragedy in South Africa that hit us so hard and continues to affect us as an organization, although we are beginning to see the signs of new growth in the desert. Next slide. And I want to just give an insight into one of the projects that we're working with that is really kind of sums some of this up. It's in Ghana. It's a place called the Atewa Forest. It's one of the most important remaining forests in Africa for biodiversity. And yet, the forest grows on mountains made largely of bauxite, the raw material for aluminium. And the Chinese businesses have offered billions of dollars to the Ghanaian government to destroy the forest and exploit the bauxite. We don't know what's going to happen. The president of Ghana at the moment seems in favor of the project. And yet there's much, much local opposition, which Arusha is right at the heart of. And in fact, this has become a national and an international issue. Um, Prince Charles has written about it. In fact, next slide. Even Leonardo DiCaprio has been tweeting about it. Um, It's become a huge, it's the big political issue in Ghana at the moment, is what's going to happen to Atewa. And funnily enough, I was talking about this at a church in Switzerland in November, and I suddenly noticed a couple grinning broadly in the congregation. I went up and talked to them afterwards. He was from Ghana, she was from China. It was quite a live issue, but they confirmed what I was talking about here. What's the value? Do we just see short-term economic gain in a developing country? Do we see biodiversity as having intrinsic value that we're called to care for it? Do we also recognize that that forest is the water source for rivers that feed, that provide water for five million people in Ghana? such a complex issue. We don't know what will happen, but it's one of the big uh, programs that we're involved in at the moment. Next slide. EcoChurch. Some of you will know about EcoChurch. Started by Arosha UK with support from Tear Fund and the Church of England and others. That was launched three and a bit years ago. We now have more than 2,000 churches in England and Wales doing EcoChurch. It's been a fantastic success story, and it continues to grow. Uh, and I really commend it. It's a great program. Next slide. And my own life as Director of Theology for Russia International seems to have just gone ballistic in terms of the opportunities that we're finding around the world to talk about this. Um, I'm part of something called the Lausanne uh, Creation Care Network. I'm one of Lausanne, the Lausanne Movement Globally's um, Catalysts for Creation Care. And we've set up an e-news called The Pollinator, where we now have more than 2,000 leaders 
from more than 120 countries around the world sharing their stories of how they're getting their churches, their communities, sometimes their whole countries involved in this work. My um, old book, Planetwise, written about 12 years ago, and I've brought some copies, they're out the back there. It's now been translated into Spanish. It's been republished in Dutch. And I had an email this morning talking about the impact it's, the new edition is having in the Netherlands, where I've been asked to be the main plenary speaker for New Wine Netherlands this year, talking about creation care, because this is the topic in the Netherlands this year. Um, and my other little book, um, God Doesn't Do Waste, is now available in French. Un Dieu, zéro déchet. One God, zero waste. Because zero waste is a big theme in French, in France. Um, and the opportunities are just exploding, but we haven't got the capacity to fulfill them all, and so we need discernment. Next slide. And my good friend and colleague, Ruth Valerio, who used to work for Roche UK and now works for Tear Fund, her new book, Saying Yes to Life, is the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book for this year, and I really commend it. It's on this subject, and I think you're going to be studying it here as a Lent book here. And um, I was with Ruth on Thursday and Friday, and uh, the response the book is getting is phenomenal. These are exciting times, as well as terrifying times. Next slide. So our 2020 vision for planet Earth. As I wrap up, let me give a couple of just suggestions. We need to have a sense of interdependence. We are not independent. We are interdependent with every other creature on this planet. Next slide. This is a model that Oxfam developed that shows that. You know, everything is about the economy. Countries are judged by GDP, and yet the economy is a subset of human society And I'm sorry, but human society is a subset of the planet. We need to get that the right way round. Next slide. Four values I want to leave you with. Four values that really, I think, can shape our vision for the planet. The value of wonder. Take delight in nature. Go for a walk. Get wet. Dig the earth. Go on out there and enjoy. Have an empathy with creation's beauty and creation's groaning. Second value, humility. Recognizing the mess we've made and our need to learn from God, from Scripture, and from the rest of creation. If Jeremiah could say to the people of Israel, you've been a bit stupid, you better start looking at the storks because they know when to migrate. You don't know how to obey me. We need to listen and learn, to lament and repent. Thirdly, simplicity, to have joy in enough, to recognize that the word more usually means sin. Let's have joy in enough. Let's encourage and challenge each other to detox from the materialism that crushes our souls and destroys our lifestyles. Fourthly and finally, And interestingly, I was talking to a leader from the Extinction Rebellion movement this week. And she said, she said, we've got three values. And I listened with interest. And they were the same as the three I've just talked about. They were about empathy with nature, wonder. They were about um, resilience and um, restraint, simplicity. And they were about, what's the third one? I can't remember now what I've just said. Humility. And there was about humility as well. 
But what she didn't have was the fourth value. And this takes us right back to Isaiah 35, the value of hope. Because we know that God can change things when they seem most impossible. Wonder, humility, simplicity, and hope. That's our vision for planet Earth for 2020. Is that the last one or is there one more? Is that the last slide? That's the last slide. Let me just pray and then hand back to Mark. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us by your Spirit. Show us your heart for your world, your earth, that you created very good, that you placed us within to tend and to keep. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for messing up what we were entrusted with. And equip us, Lord. Equip equip us with a vision, not of hope that we can save the planet, but of hope that the world is in your hands and you will renew all things. And let us live in the light of that hope, Lord. Let us anticipate it through our daily habits and practices and choices. Give us wonder. Give us humility. Give us simplicity. Give us hope. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Um. Dave's mentioned the uh, Ruth Valerio's book, Saying Yes to Life. It's a book that we're going to be doing a sermon series on over Lent here. So each of the preachers here are going to get a copy of that book. And um, would encourage you, if you're in a growth group, to encourage your growth group leaders to pick up on that during Lent and say, let's study this book together. I'm rereading it at the moment. Um, Just started again this week. I've got through chapter 2. Um, having read it initially as uh, part of the Tier Fund Theological Committee, and it's it's just a fantastic book. But Dave, I mean, I, my heart was singing as you were preaching there. It's fantastic. Can I can I can I just say we can't all reach the heights that you and Anne have reached with the way in which you live your lives. But if you that this is a crisis, and Ealing Council are a declared climate crisis council. Um, obviously, there's stuff that we need to talk about as a church, of what we can do together here in the management of our church. But if we were to, if you were to encourage people to go away with one thing today, to say, what one thing could we all do to begin this journey? to make these change, what one thing would you say? It's a really hard question because it's probably different for different people. Um, It will depend on your life stage. For some of you, it might be get rid of your car and start using public transport all the time because it's great in London. For some of you, it might be get rid of meat, either partly or completely from your diet. For some of you, it might mean change your electricity supplier. 
But I'm going to say one thing that I think everyone can do, because if we're to keep hope, then I think the one thing that is most important is the thing about wonder, about enjoying God's creation and listening to God speak to you when you go for a walk down the canal or to Ostley Park or Walpole Park or wherever, or just hear a robin singing in your garden. Let God speak to you through creation. Rekindle your sense of wonder. 